When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the News with Dan. We have a lot of feuds to break down, one involving an A-list star and an A-list director, one involving multiple A-list stars inside of one franchise, as well as a controversy around a new release, and of course, as always, your questions. So let's jump right into it with our very first story for today, and that is what seems to be a burgeoning feud between Tom Cruise and Christopher Nolan. That's right, the two people who really were committed more than anyone else to preserving the sanctity of the theatrical experience, well, that very same theatrical experience may be causing conflict. This is according to a report that came from the news site Puck. They say that it comes from multiple sources. As always, I can't confirm any of this, so you could potentially take it with a grain of salt, but it does make sense. And what it basically boils down to is this. Next month, Tom Cruise has a big movie coming out, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1, on July 12th. Christopher Nolan also has a big movie coming out, Oppenheimer, on July 21st. And what we have here is a conflict for IMAX screens, because Tom Cruise, very proud of the cinematic nature of his films, part of Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning was filmed in IMAX cameras. He wants people to go see his movie in IMAX. However, apparently... Universal negotiated an exclusive IMAX deal with Oppenheimer that books it on every IMAX screen in the country for about three weeks. And so what we have here is a conflict between these two that basically only sees Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning getting a nine-day window in IMAX theaters before it gets the boot so that Oppenheimer can come in. And Tom Cruise, as you can imagine, is not happy about this and is reportedly trying to lock down as many other premium cinemas as he can for Mission Impossible premium cinemas being, you know, your XD theaters, basically the non-IMAX experiences that still cost more because of better sound, better picture. According to Puck's report, quote, Cruz has lately shifted his efforts to securing as many of those non-IMAX PLF screens as he can. He's been furiously showing the film to exhibitors in an effort to convince them to switch their plans from Oppenheimer or Barbie. Cruz is even personally calling around to exhibition and studio executives per multiple sources. According to one top exec, Cruz has asked rivals to relinquish PLFs or even move their release dates for the good of the entire theatrical business. And this is a very complex system that's worked out here. Theaters are booking these movies into different slots months ahead of time. And so basically, if you have a a Dolby theater or an XD theater in your building, perhaps you have booked Oppenheimer or Barbie for that week because that is a big showdown already, just those two movies. Tom Cruise, according to this report, is calling around to these different exhibitors and saying like, listen, I'm getting booted off the IMAX screens. I know you're planning to show Barbie or um, Oppenheimer in your XD theater. I I think you need to book Mission Impossible. Here, I'm going to show you the movie. You can see the movie. I think it's great. And basically, we now have a competition for a limited number of screens because Cruz believes that his movie should be the one that people are seeing with the best possible picture and sound. If we were going by the schoolyard rule of dibs, 
then Tom Cruise loses this contest because going back into the archives, Oppenheimer claimed its release date back in October of 2021. Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 claimed its release date in January of 2022, meaning that Oppenheimer was already sitting on that July date before Dead Reckoning Part 1 decided to release less than two weeks before. Now, it pushed its release date back two days at CinemaCon, I think because they realized that there was going to be this competition for IMAX screens and they wanted to get those extra couple of days in that premium format. But this shouldn't have been a surprise to anybody because these dates have both been on the calendar for well over a year. Now, in my personal opinion... I think that Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 should have shifted its release to August because when you look at August on the calendar, you could have those premium theaters probably pretty much through September. You've got Blue Beetle there, but I think that Tom Cruise would probably win that competition and it's far less competitive. But August is also a bit of a slower month for the box office, not necessarily considered to be where you release your prime summer movies. And for whatever reason, the decision was made to have Mission Impossible go into the middle of a very competitive summer. I mean, this is a brutal summer, but it doesn't really matter because it seems like Tom Cruise's philosophy is, I'm not moving, they should be the one that moves. But if we're moving beyond the playground dibs strategy, then I think that Cruz also has a point as far as which movie is likely to generate more business. I picked Oppenheimer as one of the top 10 summer grocers this year, but that was before I knew that it was going to be reportedly around three hours long, and as was announced this week, that it's also rated R. And an R-rated three-hour-long historical drama in IMAX is a bit of a tougher sell than the latest Tom Cruise action adventure. And if it does have that three-week exclusive window, then I could see a time or a possibility where Oppenheimer is playing to a lot of somewhat empty IMAX theaters because the adult audience has come out and seen it and you're not packing in as many people, especially during the day, and Mission Impossible could potentially have been making those theaters more money. But Nolan has always been an IMAX guy. It's not surprising that he was able to sign this exclusivity agreement because he has made IMAX a lot of money. A lot of people might not remember this, but before the dark... Dark Knight, a movie being released in an IMAX theater was certainly not as common as it is now, and it was certainly far less common for a movie to be shot in IMAX. Nolan really helped to pioneer that entirely. So this is a very complex disagreement here, and I don't really know if anybody's going to move. I mean, Tom Cruise can't make any of these movies move. I don't think that Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 is going to move, even though it's been behind the curve as far as promotional materials, advertising, trailers, etc. I just think that we're at a stalemate here, and I think that there's going to be a lot of anger and hurt feelings, and this is still a rollover effect, really, from the pandemic, because Mission Impossible is one of those movies that was shooting during the pandemic. It's been delayed multiple times off of its release date because they were still shooting, still shooting, still shooting, and here we are in 2023 still having these after effects. So this is an A-list face-off, or perhaps an A-list Cold War, but if something should happen and one of these movies should move, this would be a pretty big story. And of course, it's something that I'm going to keep tracking here on the channel.
but let's move from the birth of a feud to the death of a feud, but then perhaps the rebirth of another feud like a phoenix from the ashes. And if you haven't seen the 10th Fast and the Furious film, Fast X, yet, then I am going to be talking a little bit about some spoilers regarding that movie. So if you don't want to know about which cast members are potentially returning in the future, then you can skip ahead to the next story. But if you do want to know, or if you already know, and you probably do because this was spoiled by the rap before the movie even came out, then... And uh, let's talk about the Fast and the Furious franchise and the return of one Dwayne The Rock Johnson. There is a chilly relationship between The Rock and Vin Diesel. The Rock walked away from the main Fast and Furious films after The Fate of the Furious. He did his own spinoff film with Jason Statham and then kind of went away to do his own thing. But as revealed in one of the mid credit scenes of Fast X... Luke Hobbs, the character played by The Rock, is returning to the franchise. It was thought that he might be joining the main story, but this week we learned that The Rock will be in his own spinoff film. Now, this is not a sequel to Hobbs and Shaw. This appears to be a solo Hobbs story that ties into Fast X and leads into Fast X Part 2. Fast 11, you never know what they're going to call any of these different movies, but basically a Hobbs versus Dante played by Jason Momoa film that is going to serve as the connective tissue between these other movies. On social media, The Rock said, quote, your reactions around the world to Hobbs' return in Fast X have blown us away. The next Fast and Furious film you'll see the legendary showman in will be the Hobbs movie that will serve as a fresh new chapter and set up for Fast X Part 2. Last summer, Vin and I put all the past behind us. We'll lead with brotherhood and resolve and always take care of the franchise characters and fans that we love. I've built my career on an audience-first mentality, and that will always serve as my North Star congratulations to my fast family and universal studios on the global success of fast x and as always hobbs and seven bucks productions are motivated to help take the fast franchise to new and exciting places for fans worldwide and as the rock mentioned there his company will be producing the film and reportedly chris morgan who's the longtime screenwriter for the fast and furious franchise has written or is writing the script for the film. There's no writing that's going on right now, obviously, because of the writer's strike. So hopefully it is a completed script. If it's not, no work will be done until that strike is resolved. But even putting that aside, if we're looking at the overall calendar, it said that Fast X Part 2, Fast 11, whatever, is expected in theaters as of now in 2025. Now, a prolonged strike could delay that release date. This movie is not in active production. Perhaps there is a completed screenplay. There is no director that has been announced, so they can't really be that far into pre-production. The fastest of fast tracks would get the Hobbs movie into theaters in a year. Uh, More likely 18 months would be what we're looking at for a movie of this size. Perhaps there will be a short gap between this one and maybe they do still try to do Fast X Part 2 in 2025. But my main thing is that if you've seen Fast X, at the end of the film, it's a cliffhanger that I think you have to pick up right away from. You can't do like a time jump and be like, oh, well, this is what happened. Uh, Dominic Toretto has with him uh, at the end of this film uh, a human child. Uh, who I assume uh, will be growing and has grown since they shot Fast X, which is probably quite some time ago, and will continue to grow until they do the next Fast X movie. And my guess would be 
uh, unless they like write him out of the movie somehow or they turn him into a Navi, you're really going to notice that that kid has somehow grown up miraculously between the 30 seconds that passed at the end of Fast X to the beginning of Fast X Part 2. It's what I call the Walt from Lost problem. Now, if this were a normal franchise, this would be a situation that would probably have been planned for. Um, maybe they did shoot one scene with Dom's child and then write him out of the movie, although that really wouldn't make much sense. And, you know, the Fast and Furious franchise is known for its airtight logic. But somehow I doubt that they did that and this is just going to be some weird thing that exists and this is my problem with Vin Diesel. I think that he is the Fast and Furious franchise's biggest liability uh, but also not its biggest asset. I know that he thinks that he's the biggest asset for the franchise and as a producer of these films, which he is, I think that he also has a duty to kind of be one of the people with a roadmap to what is going to happen here. And he doesn't really seem to be having that. This is just becoming a big old mess. It went from being a two-parter to maybe a three-parter, but now it's this Hobbs movie, the third part. So is it back to being a two-parter with an intermediary movie in between that you're going to have to go see? I've mentioned that I don't like the roadmap here, and I don't mind them doing a Hobbs movie, but I think it's a terrible move to do it in between, and especially when there appears to be another feud burgeoning with Vin Diesel and another star in the movie, according to Radar Online, and that would be Jason Momoa, one of the newest additions to the cast. He plays the villain Dante. In many people's opinions, including mine, he was the best thing about Fast X. But Vin Diesel seems to have different thoughts. According to this Radar Online report, quote, Diesel is unwilling to accept that he might have played a role in the poor reviews and is throwing Momoa under the bus. Insider said the strong man has been telling friends Jason's overacting and scene stealing undermined his movie. Then, you know, I'm just speaking from one man's perspective here, uh, but Jason Momoa was the only thing that kept your movie interesting. Everything that I loved about Fast X was basically tied to Jason Momoa. And so to, to think if this is true, and again, these reports, you never quite know where they're sourced, but honestly, any Vin Diesel news that crosses my desk, I generally just assume that it's true because Vin Diesel's kind of a weird guy. So I wouldn't be shocked to hear that he would have perhaps a negative reaction to being upstaged in his own movie, but that's just how it is. Dominic Toretto, for a very long time, has been the least interesting thing about any Fast and Furious movie. Basically, since he and the late, great Paul Walker uh, split paths at the end of Furious 7, I don't care about Dominic Toretto at all. And Vin Diesel, again, as a producer, you've got to put that vanity aside and, and, and read the room here and understand that you've actually got something with Jason Momoa, just like you had something with The Rock. You don't want to drive Jason Momoa away now too because you keep driving charismatic stars away from your franchise and i'm sorry but vin diesel is not enough on his own to bring people in the doors to see fast and furious films i think the box office results from the last couple should prove that so please vin i beg of you don't push Jason Momoa away. You should be bringing him in. You should be giving him a bigger role because he is a breath of fresh air for these movies. Don't mess this up. I don't know what's going on with you and The Rock. We'll see what happens with these movies, but please, I just... Can we? I just want to get to the end of this at this point. Let's just get to the end of this franchise. Let's see what happens. The drama is fun, but it's been almost 20 years. It's been over 20 years of this. Enough is enough. Let's pull this thing into the garage. Let's shut the door, and let's see what the next chapter is.
Okay, so before we get into your questions, we're going to move into an area that, quite frankly, it's not my favorite area. I actually generally kind of stay away from this kind of stuff. So I'm going to try to approach this as um, reasonably as I can. I've tried this in the past before, and it has completely blown up in my face. So let's see what happens this time. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about Little Mermaid, and not just the movie itself. I've talked about that plenty. But the alleged review bombing that has been going on uh, with the user scores, particularly on IMDb. If you look at the user scores on IMDb, the majority of scores are not just low scores, but one-star scores. It's got a bigger percentage of one-star scores than any other percentage. That led IMDb to issue a notification saying that they believe that there was something that was happening, an anomaly with these scores. And so they are presenting instead a weighted average. Of course, other people then are saying that IMDb is covering for The Little Mermaid and they're trying to hide a negative reaction to the movie. So let's just break into this a little bit and I'll give you my thoughts on the whole situation. First of all, review bombing is not just leaving a bad review or saying something bad about a movie. And that's kind of a false equivalency that's often given, usually to people that deny that review bombing is happening. Review bombing is when a large number of people go and they rate a movie one star. And the goal of this is to drag down the overall audience score of a movie to make it look bad, to basically say, see, the audience hates this. And it's usually pretty clear when review bombing is happening because it is almost always out of step in some way, shape, or form with the reaction from general audiences of the film. For example, when you look at something like the cinema score for The Little Mermaid, it got an A cinema score. It got pretty good critical reviews. Not great critical reviews, but pretty good critical reviews. Certainly there was nothing in the overall reaction, publicly or critically, to lead you to believe that most of the ratings or the biggest percentage of ratings for this film would be one star. Maybe two, three, four, five, six stars. But one star specifically... That is a little suspicious. These campaigns are usually pretty easy to spot. The Little Mermaid, of course, was targeted with review bombing. Black Panther was review bombed. Captain Marvel was review bombed. She-Hulk, Ms. Marvel, Eternals, all the subject of review bombing. And I don't think that the common thread is tough to figure out here. Not only were these all Disney projects, but these were all projects in which the lead of the film was a woman a person of color, or a woman of color. Disney, by and large, tends to attract these review bombing campaigns, and it's largely because, and I've criticized them for this many times in the past, that they will often lead with the messaging around a film and tell the audience how important it is because of the lead or who has been cast in the main role. I am of the opinion that, you know, I applaud Disney making these moves, but I believe personally the strategy should be to lead with selling the movie itself and then let the casting choices uh, speak for themselves. For example, uh, Ms. Marvel, I thought was a really good show. And I thought that it was a great representation of that culture. Uh, and I don't think that I needed to be told in the promotional interviews, etc., how important this show was because I think the show speaks for itself in that matter. And I think that what that does is, really, I don't think it converts anybody new to watch the show, but I do think it often attracts a lot of people who don't like the casting in these shows uh, and they become a target. And and lately, the word, it's gone through many iterations. Um, when I first started out on the internet, it was SJW. Uh, now it's uh, woke, 
woke is the big we see it everywhere it, it something is labeled woke it, it's it's a word that started out um I, ironically to signify being aware of things like societal injustices etc it is now just a term that has been slapped onto just about everything uh, and generally just means something that a particular group of people doesn't like and it's usually tied to some kind of a social issue now a lot of people that come out against films that they consider woke will also uh, say that audiences by and large reject this ideology. Uh, get woke, go broke is the big thing. And basically, uh, again, the, the theory behind that is that uh, if a film or a TV show embraces this ideology, that audiences will reject it. Uh, and that should be a lesson to those studios uh, not to do those things anymore. But at the same time, we have a, a movie in theaters this weekend, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse is the most overtly woke movie that I've seen in theaters in a very long time. And I'm not applying that label. I'm using it as other people do. I personally hate that label. But it is a superhero film with a mixed race lead. It features spider people of all shapes, races, and genders. It has a character in Gwen Stacy with a protect trans kids flag in her room. The lead of the movie, Miles Morales, prominently has a Black Lives Matter sticker on his backpack. By the standards of those who apply the Get Woke, Go Broke label, uh, then Across the Spider-Verse should have been roundly rejected by audiences for its very upfront ideology and inclusion, and yet it has been ecstatically received by audiences and not just verified audience scores. If you go to IMDb right now, only 2% of the reviews for Across the Spider-Verse are one-star reviews. Now, some would say that the lack of one-star reviews for Across the Spider-Verse would be proof that review bombing doesn't exist. I would counter that it seemed fairly apparent that this was going to be a successful movie and therefore targeting it would have basically punched a hole in the narrative. If you say that audiences don't go see movies that are woke and if you call Across the Spider-Verse really woke but audiences love it, then that kind of blows up what your thesis statement is. I really can't underscore enough how much I, I don't like talking about this, but when you look at the movie YouTube space, so much of it is driven by this discussion right now. And and it's because really we're kind of so polarized when it comes to what we uh, consume. Do I believe that everybody who didn't like The Little Mermaid or everybody who went online and gave it a low score is a racist or a sexist? Absolutely not. There are plenty of people who went and saw the movie and just hated it. They didn't like the music. They didn't like the adaptation. They didn't like the cinematography. Uh, th there are plenty of reasons to not like The Little Mermaid. I personally enjoyed it, but I can't sit here and say like, well, the movie is objectively good, and if you didn't like it, well, then you must have a problem with the people that are in it. That's not the case. Nobody should feel obligated to like or dislike a movie or show based on who's in it or who the lead is or who wrote it, etc. You should only feel an obligation to yourself to engage with something openly and honestly, and you shouldn't be afraid to share that opinion. Again, though, that's not the same as these aggressive review bombing campaigns. They're totally different. And, and it's very obvious when the review bombing is going on. It's not that a movie is getting bad reviews. It's that it's only getting these one-star, one-sided reviews. And again, usually sort of out of sync with how the general audience is reacting to the film. Even if it's negatively, it's not this negatively. And when we talk about these aggressive review bombing campaigns, are they often in part or in whole driven by racism and sexism? Absolutely. I think it would be hard to come to a conclusion 
that says otherwise. That is separate and apart from not liking a show ideologically, and that is separate and apart from not liking a show because you watched it and you didn't like the creative approach. Again, there are so many areas in the middle, and it is such a complex discussion, and I think that one of our biggest problems right now is that we take something that should be a complex discussion and we try to make it a simple discussion, and all that does is push people to one side or the other, and there is no room in the middle to actually engage with something openly and honestly. As always, and this is the message that I have on this channel all the time, you, the viewer, you, the person that is taking in what is out there on the internet, have to show a little bit of discretion. And when it comes to something like The Little Mermaid or something like Captain Marvel or 2016's Ghostbusters, God forbid, if you see somebody reacting negatively to it, then you have to kind of determine what the reason for that is. Are they reacting negatively because they don't like this take on the franchise? I mean, there's not really anything wrong with that. Everybody's free to disagree with that. I certainly have had my differences on different takes with the Star Trek franchise and so many others. Are they disagreeing because they just don't like the people that are cast in the lead roles without seeing the movie, oftentimes without even seeing a frame of it? That's something completely different. But you can't automatically drop people into one bucket or the other bucket. You have to actually listen to what they're saying and ask yourself, well, what is the motivation behind this? What are the other things that they've put out there? How have they reacted to other movies? How have they reacted to other movies with people of color in the lead or other movies with women in the lead? Is this an isolated incident or is this a pattern? As always, my advice when engaging with anything, both media and media criticism, is to look really hard at the source of that media or that criticism. What is their philosophy? Where do you think they're coming from? And ultimately, make the decision for yourself. And I think once you start doing that, then it's pretty easy to pick out the criticisms that are made in good faith from the criticisms that are made in bad faith. All right, so having said that, that's the last time I'm probably going to address this sort of thing on the channel, just because I, I don't, it, it's an exhausting conversation and you're, you're not really going to convert anybody. Let's turn now before we wrap up to your questions, because you sent a lot of great questions this week, and I'm going to try to get to as many of them as I can. And the first one is from Luke Swanson. This is actually a question I get a lot. Luke says, do you know how services like AMC A-List impact box office numbers? A lot of people think, well, if I use AMC A-List, does that mean that the money doesn't go to the movie like it normally would? And the short answer is no. There may be some sort of a negotiated prorate, slight prorate price between AMC and certain studios. Uh, but generally, if you use your AMC A-list to go see a movie, then AMC will just pay the studio it's cut as if you had walked up to the ticket booth and bought a ticket. The way that AMC makes money off of things like AMC A-List are, number one, there are a certain number of people who pay for the service, you know, let's say 20 bucks a month, and only see one movie a month. So they only have to pay out, let's say, nine bucks to a movie studio. You're paying them 20 bucks for AMC A-List. Well, they get to pocket that $11 because you didn't go to enough movies. The other way that they make money, and it's really the way that almost all movie theaters make money, is concessions. Because if you're an AMC A-list subscriber, then you are probably more likely to go to the movies because you have three every week that you can go to. And if you're more likely to go to the movie, then you're probably more likely to go to the concession stand and buy a soda or some popcorn. And it's basically like a loyalty program. A-list encourages you not just to go to the theater, but to go to AMC theaters specifically and to go there more often and to spend more money there. I guess the worst case scenario for uh, AMC would be an A-list subscriber who uses their three movies a week and never buys anything 
at the concession stand, but I think it's probably rare that they have many customers that are like that. They wouldn't do it if they didn't make money doing it. Um, but the short answer to your question is it doesn't really impact the number that goes back to the studios. It's all about the margins for AMC itself. Sometimes you get a question that surprises you. Uh, and this is one of those. And I, I, honestly, I picked it because this was the most upvoted question uh, from last week's batch. And so, I I, I mean, yeah, okay. Uh, Polly Say says, could you please remove the jaws jumping up in your intro? It really, really bugs me. I wouldn't mention it otherwise. It's creepy seeing a shark attack at the start of every one of your videos. Just have it in the background like all the other movie characters in the graphic. Just don't make it the centerpiece. It keeps me from watching your videos on a regular basis, subscribing, and supporting you on Patreon. Not kidding. I know Jaws is your favorite movie. Just don't attack your audience with a shark at the start of every video. Honestly, I've never gotten this feedback before. In the three years that I've been doing this channel, um, nobody's ever actually mentioned it. And like I said, I included it here. It's not to single anybody out, but because like I said, this was the most upvoted question that I got last week. Um, so I don't know if people just wanted to bump this to the top or if other people agree. I'm gonna show the intro here, so I don't wanna alarm anybody. But I mean, if you look at the shark, it doesn't really pop like toward you or, or out. It, it, it's really... It is in the background to me, like there's some motion attached to it, but the name comes in pretty soon and it's behind my name. I, I, I just don't, I don't really see this aggressive action here, um, Polly, and, and, and I apologize that, that that keeps you from supporting the channel and, and supporting me uh, elsewhere. So I, I, don't, I don't believe that I'll be making any changes to the intro. I guess just um, look away or, 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 you know, avert your eyes because uh, I, I certainly don't want to scare you away from the channel. I like the intro. The intro, by the way, was done by the wonderful graphics genius Robert Holtby back when I launched the channel back in 2020. He does all the graphics for Honest Trailers. Uh, just a wonderful person. Um, and so, uh, you know, I'll probably change that intro at some point. I'll keep it as is for now. But uh, yeah, I mean, sometimes, you know, sometimes you think you've heard every criticism that can be lobbed at you. Sometimes you're surprised. The next question is from Owen Rom, who says, what are your thoughts on the idea of auteurism? Are there any modern filmmakers that you would consider that fit into that category? And briefly, if you don't know what the auteur theory is, it's basically a cinematic kind of an academic theory that started back in the 50s and 60s that says that there are some directors to whom you can ascribe the singular authorship of a movie. Alfred Hitchcock is one, for example, that because he was so precise and so exact in his style and his requirements, uh, that he could be uh, considered the author of a movie in the way that somebody who writes a book could be. This has been a very debated theory among film critics and academics for a really long time. I generally kind of fall on the side that film is a collaborative medium and that while the director wields, of course, a lot of power and influence, uh, that still you have things like cinematographers who add their own special, you know, uh, input uh, to a movie and, and a writer, uh, for example, uh, will do the same and your actors. And so, you know, I don't necessarily think that you can look in a movie and say like, well, the director did all of that. I think they certainly can be the driving force behind it. Uh, and talking about directors that work right now, I think that you could put the traditional auteur label on directors like uh, Wes Anderson, Spike Lee, uh, Christopher Nolan, movies that you look at and you know immediately that movie is done by that director. I think that's generally what people mean now when they say an auteur, uh, but the theory itself I think is an interesting one. I think it's more applicable to some directors than others, but I personally uh, kind of uh, shy away from the idea that you can ascribe everything about a movie 
uh, just solely to the director. Edward Hall says, congratulations to you and Mara on your upcoming wedding. I'm only in my mid-30s, but I'm celebrating 16 years of marriage this November. Woohoo, doubters. What are your long-term plans for the channel? Where do you see yourself in 10 years? What is the ultimate goal? Thanks, and keep up all the great work. Well, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I guess long-term, my goal would be to continue to be able to do this uh, for a living. Obviously, growth here on the channel, subscriber growth, uh, continuing to build my audience out. And, and I've seen a lot of encouraging things as movies have started coming out more and more um, in theaters and people engage with them a little bit more. Honestly, a big goal for me is increasing viewership because the more viewers that I bring in, number one, um, I don't have to take on quite as many sponsors, and I love the sponsors that I have, uh, but in general, from week to week, that opens me up a little bit more as far as uh, you know the numbers that I have to hit and feeling pressure as far as like, well, I've got to hit X amount of views uh, because you know this is what I promised to X number of people. Um, but it also means you know if, if my viewership goes up, I'm able to pull in a little bit more ad rev from YouTube. That also means that maybe I can take a little bit more time between some uploads if I'm working on a, a long-form video you know, people that say like, where's your Picard season three review, you know, or where's this or where's that, you know, those are big projects and I, and I am working on them. Uh, but at the same time, you know, in order to keep things going and to pay the bills and, you know, all that stuff, then I also have to upload a certain number of times a week because, you know, just to keep things regular on the channel and to make sure that the algorithm still picks things up. I mean, there's a lot of X factors to being on YouTube. But in general, for me, the long-term goal would be to continue to just encourage a love for movies, to engage with people that love movies, and to continue to share my love of movies. Um, and and to be able to make a living doing that is a, is a dream for me. And so that's, that's my perpetual long-term goal. Brian Percival says, do you listen to or read other initial reviews before you see a movie or do you wait until after you view the movie and see what others' general thoughts are? I know in the digital age, it can be difficult to avoid hearing some initial thoughts beforehand, but I try to avoid as much as possible so that I can go into a movie as fresh as possible. Well, it was a lot easier when I lived in LA because I could usually be close to that first wave of critics that got to see a film. Here, uh, there are not as many uh, advanced critic screenings. There are a lot of times where I will travel to a city. Uh, for example, um, I'm, I'm traveling early next week to go see The Flash so that I can hit the embargo. But given that, I wasn't at CinemaCon and there's been a lot of other audiences that have seen it. And so, you know, I do know in general um, what the sentiments have been because, you know, I am plugged into the movie news world. And so I, I see what these reactions have been. I don't engage very heavily uh, with early social media reactions just because I don't want it to sort of color my own perception of a movie. So if the review embargo has actually dropped, I never read or listen to or watch anyone else's review before I go see a movie. Never. I just don't want anyone else's thoughts in my head when I see a movie other than my own. So never read or listen to someone else's reviews or watch one before I see the film. And I try to have limited interaction, as limited as I can be, um, with early social media reactions, uh, you know, apart from things where I'm reporting it here on the show as news or, you know, something's come up around it. Dan Hahnen says, I've been recently really enjoying some super tasty local pre-popped popcorn from my local grocery store and was wondering, as a critic who goes to see probably many more movies than I, do you hit the concessions for most movies or does the buttery popcorn make it hard to take literal notes while you're watching a movie? Well, you know, a lot of critics do take notes um, when watching movies. And when I first started going to see movies for review purposes, I would take a little notebook and stuff. But I found that um, it actually broke my immersion with a film. Like when I'm watching a film for the first time, 
I want as much as possible to be completely immersed in that movie. That's why it bugs the hell out of me if someone's on their phone or someone's, you know, talking nearby because, you know, it, it, it breaks that spell. It breaks that immersion. And so I found that if I'm looking down in the dark and trying to take notes, then I'm not really letting the movie do its work. It just kind of becomes academic um, instead of, to me, what it should be, which is emotional and, and you know, it should be really engaging um, your brain in that way. But when I'm doing a spoiler review, for example, I'm going to be going to see Spider-Verse um, as you're watching this today. I'm going to go see Spider-Verse again to take some notes to do a spoiler review that'll be out on the channel tomorrow. I will take notes. And that's really because I've already seen the film. Um, you know, I, I have that initial reaction. I've already put out my review and this is much more of an informative thing. So I want to take down like, oh yeah, you know, I forgot to mention that thing or I forgot to mention that detail or I want to make sure I point out this thing or that thing. Um, so that's where I will take notes in the theater. Uh, both times I'm going to get popcorn. I, I will almost always get popcorn when I go to a movie. It's just something that goes hand in hand. Um, I get the kid's size, by the way. Don't be ashamed. The popcorn portions at these theaters, most of them are ridiculous. And if you go often, um, then you could be in a little bit of trouble. Don't be ashamed. Get the kid's size. Sometimes it comes with a little bit of fruit snack. Mara usually has that. Uh, but I'm happy to eat a kid's size popcorn. Sometimes I'll get a regular. But usually, you know, little snack pack, perfect size. The last question comes from Yespaz Smith, who says, have you considered a weekly, bi-weekly, monthly show where you do a review slash recommendation slash breakdown of a classic film? You have a lot of younger fans who probably love to get into stuff from the pre-Jaws era, but don't know where to start. There are channels that do classic films only and channels that do new stuff only, but I can't think of one that does both. For example, if you did a review slash recommendation slash breakdown of some film noir, some Fleming, some DeMille, etc., well, you'd always get a view, a like, and a share from me. Well, thank you for that um yes I, I do love movies i love classic cinema and and talking about classic movies and again it kind of goes back to that long-term goal question quite frankly i found from experience that while i enjoy talking about classic movies they are easily my least viewed videos um, by, by a fairly substantial margin. So it really does come down to how much time do I have in a given week and where is that time best spent for the overall health of the channel? Uh, again, in order to hit the numbers that I need to hit every week and in order to you know, keep revenue growth strong, um, and I know that it's a it's a boring and kind of unartful answer to that question, but it's also just the realities of running a, a YouTube channel. As growth picks up and I have a little bit more flexibility, I would like to do more classic stuff because classic cinema is essential to an understanding of modern cinema. Uh, and I love when I show somebody a classic movie and they say, oh, well, that didn't feel like an old movie at all. Like, yeah, because great movies are great movies no matter when they're made. Uh, and so, yes, that was kind of the intention with all my movies, which I stopped doing because not a whole lot of people were watching it. Um, so I, I want to do more of that. It really is just a case of growing the channel, getting things in a position where I feel that I can justify spending that time uh, to do those sorts of things and not kind of be sacrificing what's best for the overall direction of everything else. Thank you, everybody, for your questions. Those were a lot of fun to answer. And thanks to everybody who stuck around for all of these news stories. Like I mentioned, I will have a spoiler review up for Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse tomorrow, unless something happens or something gets in the way. And then on Monday, Charts with Dan will be up. I know I usually do it on Tuesday, but I will be traveling on Monday to see The Flash. And then my Flash review will be out at the embargo time on Tuesday. So charts will be a day earlier. And then also next week, I'll have a review of Transformers Rise of the Beasts, as well as streaming charts, news, all the stuff that you see here on the channel. 
you're going to see it here next week. Thank you so much for watching. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. If you like what you see, please be sure to subscribe, share the video, hit the bell if you're a subscriber so that uh, you can be notified when I upload something else. Uh, but most of all, I appreciate your time. Until next time, stay safe, and I'll see you then. Bye.